This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is Asha Daya. Asha is the editor-in-chief of the website Girl Talk HQ, as well as a host and reporter and content creator based in Los Angeles. During this conversation, we talk about her experience growing up in Australia, uh, moving to the States, and her experiences within evangelicalism here, as well as life beyond evangelicalism. In the second part of the show, we talk extensively about reproductive rights and her experiences learning about that uh, after she left um, evangelicalism here in the United States. It's a really great conversation, and I hope you enjoy this episode. There are some audio issues on Ash's track, but please stick with the show. The content is really, really good, um, and I would hate for you to miss out on this conversation um, despite that. Uh, so so please um, listen through uh, in the and uh, I, I cleaned it up as best I could. There is some issue with the audio on that track, though, uh, so please bear that in mind. If you like the show, you can support the show by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. That is the best way to let pe- other people know about the show, other than just uh, telling them face-to-face or on Twitter or Facebook or wherever else. Um, you can also support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. And you can also join the Facebook group by searching on Facebook for Exvangelical. It is the uh, closed Facebook group. Um, we've got over 1,600 members now, which is crazy and amazing. And there's a, a lot of great conversation happening there. Um, you can also like the show on Facebook. That is at the separate page, facebook.com slash exvangelicalpod. That's just the um, you know the page that, that you can like. That's, that's something you can do on Facebook. Uh, and it certainly also <laughs> helps the visibility of the show. Uh, over on Twitter, you can follow me at brchastain, and you can follow uh, the show at exvangelicalpod. All right, let's get into this conversation with Ashadaya. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Exvangelical. I have with me this week the host, journalist, content creator, and editor-in-chief of Girl Talk HQ, Ashadaya. Asha, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad we were able to connect. Thanks for coming on. Um, so we'll just start where I, where I usually like to start these conversations is to really just get a uh, sense of where you uh, where you grew up and just a bit of your background. So let's. Uh, I know you initially said that you uh, lived in Brisbane. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I grew up in Brisbane, Australia, but I was actually born in the UK, um, in Birmingham, another city beginning with B, uh, but I migrated <laughs> to Australia when I was eight with my family and the majority of my schooling, um, higher education and like initial entry into the workforce in Australia. So I would definitely consider myself more Australian and I sound more Australian than I do British. And I moved to the United States in 2008, so I've been here almost 10 years now, which is crazy. Uh, um, but yeah, so that's that's kind of like where I've lived geographically. And I was born into a Christian family, um, grew up going to church for as 
I can remember in England, in Australia, and even here when I moved um, to Los Angeles. So that's definitely been a massive part of my identity growing up. Um, and I'm also Indian too, by ethnicity. So that was another huge part of my identity. But I, I feel like there were parties that were always separate. Like there was like the church Asha, the Indian Asha, and the real Asha, um, where I was like, this girl obsessed with music and grunge and magazines and like TV stuff. So, um, and, and acting in Hollywood, which is probably why I ended up here. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, that's kind of in nutshell, my upbringing and where I come from. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. There's a lot of things, uh, uh I'd like to touch on there. Um, first off, like, uh, as far as first living in the UK and then moving to Australia was, and always going to church. Did you go to the same sorts of churches in in both countries and, and in both parts of your childhood? Or was there like a switch between those two locations? I honestly can't remember what denomination the church in Birmingham was in, in the UK. Um, but I remember, uh, and even to this day, like my parents still they've always been involved in like smaller community churches mm -hmm. that meet in like a small auditorium or like a rented building rather than like a really big established movement. Um, eventually in Brisbane, my parents found a Christian, a missionary Alliance church, which I believe started in the U S and they're kind of all over the world. And they're very big about supporting missionaries um, and evangelism, you know, around the world, especially in the developing world. Um, and they've been going to a CNMA church ever since they pretty much found that, which would have been, oh my gosh, I'm going to give away my age if I say it, like almost 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, so that had been the same. But then when I moved um, away from home for the first time when I was 21, I moved to Sydney uh, before moving to LA. And I started going to a church of Christ simply because it was like the closest church in my area. I wasn't really looking for just the denomination church, but I was looking for a church because that was the thing to do. And that was the thing that my parents encouraged me to do, like find a church, get plugged into a church family. Uh, and so I went to this church and, and honestly, that's out of all my church experiences around the world, the church of Christ in Sydney, which was also a fairly small congregation. It was probably the best experience that I had. Um, and when I moved to the US, um, I moved to an area, it's the South Bay, where most of the beach is, in Manhattan Beach. Um, not really out of like my truth, but I was dating a guy who was there and, and all his friends and family. So I kind of ended up at that, which was a four square church. So, and there are a number of four square churches in Los Angeles. Um, so, yeah, it's really been like a consistency in terms of denomination, but I've kind of dipped my toe into a few different um, types of churches here and there, and I've definitely seen, I mean, the, the most, uh, I don't want to use the word oppressive, I mean, I guess in some ways it is, but the most conservative would definitely have been my experience here in liberal Los Angeles, funnily enough, um, at the church for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that is that, especially if it was like a smaller, uh, congregation, I think that can be a lot of 
experiences within urban centers is like if it's a small congregation, it tends to be very more. It's yeah, it can be um, sort of like you said, oppressive uh, that um, because they can be such tight knit communities, but they're also so conservative. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Um, I, I would, <laughs> my, yeah, my family had a similar experience here too in Chicago. So. Oh, interesting. And mm-hmm. I will also say, um, I know one of your previous guests who you had on from Australia said that in Australia it is a little bit different with the evangelical environment in the sense that, I mean, granted I wasn't very politically motivated at all growing up, um, but there was never a sense of going to church, hearing about politics and being told to vote a certain way for a certain party or candidate. So mm-hmm. there was none of that. And I don't think that is in the same way that it is like here in the United States still to this day, but it is changing. Uh, every time I go back to Australia, I'm surprised by, you know, right-wing candidates that are like praising Trump and I'm just like, oh, for goodness sake, please, like, how, how far spread how, how spread out does this guy's message go? It's kind of getting scary. But um, anyway, yeah. I just thought I'd throw that in so yeah. people kind of understand that. It is a little different in you know, the evangelical setting is different overseas. Yeah. Um, so especially with regards to that political connection, right? It's, uh, it's just yeah. it wasn't there in that sort of way in your in your childhood. Uh, no. Um, what about the sort of just other, other sort of things like cultural trappings as far as stuff that um, was going on in the 80s and 90s and 2000s within a lot of, well, a lot of people, when a lot of people think of, you know, Christian culture, evangelical culture during those times. There's like Third Day and Newsboys and mm. like I Kiss Stating Goodbye and all that sort of and like, <laughs> uh, like like all the things you would find at a Christian bookstore in the U.S. Like, uh, did you have those things in Australia? Uh, the bad news is we had those things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I remember going to like it was called the Word Bookstore, uh, which which was like the the Christian bookstore to go to in Brisbane where there weren't a lot of Christian bookstores. Um, but I remember going to a DC talk concert. I've been to a Billy Graham rally. I was kind of made to read. I kissed dating goodbye. And then there's a, there was a follow-up one, right? I kissed dating. Hello. Um, which uh, I, I, boy meets I don't girl. know if I read boy that. Meets girl oh, boy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I guess dating hello would have sounded so much better, but you know. <laughs> <You're> right, <laughs> don't write that book, Josh. Just don't don't write those books. We're, we're done. Um, <laughs> so we had those. We knew about James Dobson and focus on the family, um, Chuck Swindle. So the, the far-reaching effects of American evangelicalism were definitely felt culturally in my life, um, and purity culture. Yeah, cannot miss that one. It was always like you know, be modest, cover up. And I remember, I have an older sister, and I remember I was such a tomboy growing up, so I was very, like, insecure body in the way I looked. So I was always wearing, like, tomboyish clothes anyway, but my sister was very much into, like, fashion and much more well-dressed than I was. But, you know, sometimes she would get comments from my parents, like, oh, you know, why do you wearing that shirt? Cover up. And when I look back at it now, I'm just like, she was showing nothing. And my poor sister was probably made to feel like, you know, just just that sense of not 
not being good enough or shame for even showing the slightest of skin. And I don't necessarily blame my parents for that. It's just like the culture we were embedded in to think like these are the boxes you have to tick in order to be a good Christian girl and be a good witness, especially to all our, you know, non-Christian friends and family around us. Um, yeah, culturally, the evangelical force was strong for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you missed the po- political stuff, but you got so much more, so much of of the rest of it. So, <laughs> yeah. so like you, you got almost the whole package <laughs> of evangelical yeah, culture. <laughs> if we had a Republican Party, I'm sure that if if we had a Republican Party, we would have been told to vote for them. But thankfully, we didn't have any of that growing up. I think it would have made me even more. And better than I am about politics today, just being here 10 years. Yeah, yeah. It's been an interesting 10 years for sure since you've, since you've uh, yes. been living here in the U.S. So um, so I, I want to get back to what you mentioned about um, saying that you felt like you had like three versions of yourself when you were, when you were growing up. You had like the church version of yourself, the family, like Indian version of yourself, and then what you said was like, um, the the real you, the the person that you felt sort of more unreserved about yourself in the way you were. Um, I think a lot of pe- a lot of people who listen to the show could probably very much identify with that as far as like splitting your identity and the way you act around different people. Um, so how did that um, what did that look like for you growing up, and how did how did that sort of um, how did you switch between those things and uh, yeah, I'm just I'm curious how that played out in your in your child in your youth. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and that's something that I've only recently realized was a huge part of my growing up. There was you know this push and pull between different identities. But growing up in Australia, although it is very multicultural, a little bit like the United States, it's very like when you turn on the TV, you will see white people like all the major news networks um, and, you know, media shows up, pretty much white Australian people. There is there is a lot of racism um, culturally in Australia that doesn't really get talked about, but it's definitely there. So I always felt like the Indian part weekends and to stay hidden and not to show my, like, my cool white Australian friends. Like, I wanted to be Australian. I didn't want to be Indian. Um, even though every, literally every second person at my high school was like Tongan, Asian, Indian. I don't know, just that that idea of being Australian and being white, even though it's not. So that was like, you know, one thing I struggled with. And the church part of me was a different struggle. It's, you know, the the whole idea of I'm going to say the right things and do the prayers and uh, we're going to sit at the table with my family and we're going to, pray together and read from the Bible together and sing those songs and all that kind of stuff. But outside of that, like, I'm probably going to drop a few cuss words because that's who <laughs> I really am. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to listen to, <laughs> I'm going to listen to Nirvana and Silverchair and Pearl Jam because hey, it was the 90s, guys. Um, <laughs> and, you know, those bands that, you know, we're not supposed to listen to because of lyrics and all of those kind of things. But, uh, yeah, I, I just constantly felt like I was being pushed in different personas, identities, depending on what day of the week it was. And it was it was ongoing. And I honestly don't think it was until late in my 20s, 
um, that I, I realized like, hey, actually, I love every single part of who I am and each part and I just one thing. I guess part of my growing up was that I felt like I needed to fit into one box, like one single identity to be cool, be accepted or feel like I fit in. Like I never felt like I fit in because like one foot in, in the Indian world, one foot in the Christian world, one foot in the, you know, wanting to be Australian world. And uh, so, yeah, it, it was a struggle. But now I'm a little bit, you know, now that I'm in my early 30s, I'm a lot more relaxed about it. But I, I realized that it was something, I didn't really even realize what a struggle it was until later and that I'm definitely not the only person to go through with that. Uh, to go through with with that kind of struggle, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was um, yeah. It, it, I really did not like part of growing up. Yeah, yeah. I um, I mean, the I, I grew up in a very homogenous, like small town that was very the, highly majority white in small town Indiana. But I, as so, like the those sorts of multicultural things. Um, were not part of mine, but I, I certainly remember like the thing between like church and and music mm. and everything, um, and the the way you mentioned silver chair and everything. Um, mm-hmm. uh, one of my and Pearl Jam and all that. Like one of one of my favorite memories is actually my my older sister. She's a few years older than me. She uh, one time we were parked in our uh, church parking lot, and. Um, she had a tape of gin and juice, like unedited, <laughs> and it was like the best thing ever to just listen to, to uh, Snoop's gin and juice in the parking lot and feel uh, like scandalous, Blake. So I know, scandalous. I know, right? <laughs> so, um, but but yeah, I and I. So, going back to what you mentioned as far as um, the, like the cultural racism and as far as like uh, even though. The, the population was very, um, very multicultural, uh, but w- white sort of felt like the was the sort of default um, identity that people tried to tried to a- appeal to or, or what have you. I mean, it's definitely the default kind of persona that's seen as you know the norm, quote unquote. Um, and Australia has a very, very deep and dark racist history, especially with the indigenous populations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's, if you look that up, it's it's really horrible. I mean, there was a time when Aboriginal people were not classed as Indians. Under the Australian constitution, they were classed as the, the um, under the Flora and Fauna Act, which is disgraceful, so they're either plants or animals, which is... Insane. So, you know, we Australia has that as a bedrock foundation, and um, you know, then the the mission, the the Christian missionaries came in, and immigrants came in, and the British came in, and they, you know, up industry and and you know started to colonize Australia basically, but they also decided to take the Aboriginal kids away from their parents because mm-hmm. then you know these white people knew better. And essentially, they were wanting to, quote, unquote, breed the black out of these children. And it's referred to as the stolen generations, where they stole the kids from the families, put them in, like, very schools, and 
taught them English because this, you know the English way of life was better than their indigenous way of life. They were just primitive savages, similar to you know you hear about Native Americans in this country, and it's very very similar kind of um, foundation. I mean, it's colonization. It, it, there's a, there's like a similar thread of colonization colonization all around the world, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's really ugly. So that's probably. I mean, that's probably the, the simplest explanation of why there is still a huge undercurrent of racism in, uh, in Australia. So, and I, it's, I mean, it's gotten better over the years. I mean, there are, you know, the population of Indigenous representatives in Parliament is still very low. Um, you know, people of colour and LGBT people and, and, you know, on a national and state level in Australia, it isn't exactly equal uh, although they did just legalize same-sex marriage yesterday, which was a mad thing in Australia. Um, but yes, yeah, so Australia, is, for as progressive as it is in terms of its healthcare and education, there are still a lot of like deep-seated, um, uh, what's the word, wounds that society at large still hasn't fully, um, you know, made amends for and the other countries have, like Germany, for instance. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's still there. And you, you definitely feel it, you know, the more we get, the more you hear about politics and the more you learn about you know, indigenous populations, migrant populations. and So, yeah, I, th- I think people don't see that when they hear about Australia. They hear about, you know, Chris Hemsworth or Hugh Jackman, but it's like, no, it's not them representative of what Australia is as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's. I mean, uh, I there was a lot there that you mentioned that I I wasn't aware of, um, and that's that's very um, difficult. <laughs> it's yeah. it's very difficult to. Uh, I I yeah, it, it's just <laughs> that that's the sort of stuff that that sort of makes me stammer and not know what to say. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a lot. To, yeah, it's a lot to process, and it's actually kind of. Makes all makes ashamed as a human being to be. How can a human do that to another human being? It's really awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so if we could pivot a little bit, I know that's sort of a hard uh, a hard thing to to pivot from, um, but to sort of return back back to your your story here. Uh, when you, you mentioned that uh, you grew up in these uh, Christian and Missionary Alliance churches, and then um after moving moving uh on to sydney and then subsequently to uh la you, you that's where you you um we mentioned pardon me you, you we mentioned in prior emails and everything that you started uh and first moved into like a uh with someone you knew through like a christian network in la correct and that was like part of how you how you moved to the states yeah so i I had planned to move here to further my career in television. Um, that was always on the cards for me professionally. Um, but it also just so happened that um, I had a family friend, an acquaintance of a famous friend, um, who through my parents' church at the time in Brisbane, who um, I had become friends with, and they lived in the South Bay area and when I would come to LA and visit, I would go to this friend's church with him and get to know people in the area. And, you know, as a visitor from the outside, and the church is very big. 
um, at least a 5,000 member congregation um, across the number of services they have. They have about four, three or four services over the weekend. Wow. Um, but, but from the outside looking in, I, I wouldn't class it as a mega church, by the way, but it's, it is a very big church. Hmm. Um, they, I mean, they don't call themselves a mega church. It's just a big church. But so from the outside, for me, it's like, oh, you know, they seem like really great people. They're really laid back. It's a beach city church. So everyone's like flip-flops, Hawaiian shirts, very cool, you know, Southern California vibe, uh, very inviting and, um, you know, a very thriving youth population, it seemed at the time, and um, very diverse, you know, nationalities represented. And I also felt, like, so comfortable going there. But I think that was also my naivete thinking, like, as long as I wherever I am in the world, Christ, uh, I'm going to be at home, quote unquote. Um, so it was part of that that also helped me feel like, yeah, cool. I'll just start going to this church. There was no sort of thought about like, well, what is their creed? What is their doctrine? What do they think about this issue? It was just like, oh, it's a church. I have someone there. Cool, I'm going to go to it, and that's what I did. And um, that's how I eventually getting this guy who ended up being. My first husband, um, I got married um, at the age 24, almost 25, um, and that kind of started my journey into really discovering right-wing evangelical conservatism, conservatism, I always get that word wrong. Yeah, yeah. You, you got it. <laughs> you got, got it. what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the, the Republican politics, and also it helped that the year I moved here, February 2008, later that year, of course, Obama became president, and I, in my Asher mind, was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like, they're electing a, a black man to be president. That's got to be historic and cool, right? But outwardly, and the people I was surrounding myself with, it was like, no, he's right, and he's the devil. And I was like, oh, he must be bad. Okay, cool. Um knowing anything about politics at that time and now realizing looking back that it's simply because he was a Democrat. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, so going to this church in the South Bay was my first introduction to American politics and how interwoven it was into the evangelical world, basically. Yeah, yeah. So you moved at a very interesting time to be... Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, so that was right around the same time you you joined this church and you started getting involved in this uh, relationship as well. Um, so was that would would that was all happening sort of simultaneously? You moving to this church, you um, starting this relate this relationship with your with your first husband. That was all simultaneously happening. Is yes. That, I, okay. Yes. Um, I, yeah, I moved in February 2008. Um, we got engaged toward the end of that year, got married in 2009 because, you know, long engagements are bad. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and I was issues with a visa at time, and we thought, well, you know, let's just not delay that. Let's just get married and, you know, figure out that stuff because it's easier to do that and, and, you know, get married rather than uh, – String it up, um, and then of course the election happened in November that year. But rather go when I moved to the state, 
Um, and moves back and forth were happening, you know, a couple of years before that. So by the time I moved here, I had already, you know, kind of made friend, close friends with a lot of people in this church. But I decided, okay, now that I'm here, I'm going to be a member. Um, but when I started dating the guy that I ended up marrying the first time, um, his family, you know, I, I got introduced to Fox News and people like Glenn Beck and just that whole right-wing like and that's pretty much all I knew of politics from the start. So that and this church would hand out flyers at election time, you know, when there was a vote coming up or a ballot uh, about you know certain issues. And at that time, it was Prop Eight, which was the gay marriage vote in California before it was legalized nationally. And I remember you know handing the church handing out flyers along with the church bulletin. And it would say things like, this is what probate is, and make sure you call your representative, tell them you want to vote against it, blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, I guess this is normal, you know, basically telling people. And, you know, the church pastor would stand at the pulpit and say things like, all right, voters, there you have it. You know, make sure you vote right with a big wink. And everyone would laugh, and I was like, oh, what does that mean? And now I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they said that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so. that's I mean, that's definitely very uh, partisan pulpit stuff. <laughs> it's, oh yeah. yeah. Partisan pulpit stuff. That should be a it's a podcast series. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it definitely uh it comes up a lot. There could definitely be a lot of discussions there for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there are books and books written about it and uh uh but I mean that's that's brazen for sure. You know, having your congregation hand out flyers and putting flyers in the church bulletin. Um, that's definitely brazen. Um, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned like yeah. I mean, it wouldn't explicitly say like vote for the person. It was, it, but it was definitely like a right wing Republican slant with probably a few myths about you know, gay people thrown in there too. So yeah. 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 I'm sure it was, it was heavily skewed towards things. And yeah. probably had, you know, references to Romans one twenty six or something like that in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, th- so you mentioned like also through, like you also got exposure to other parts of evangelical culture, um, through your friends and through, um, through your relationship and, and, and all, and everything like that, your marriage, uh, what other parts of like evangelical culture, um, and specifically here within the U S, um, did you sort of see, you know, through participating in the church and and, in other ways that when you were in this environment? Um, yeah, I, well, I would preface by saying like, I was deep involved in this church. Like I was on the worship team two years. I led like a Wednesday night Bible study. Um, I would like help prepare food for like the women ministry thing. I was like involved in everything. That was my community. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of like my design with that. And a lot of big close knit conservative churches, they really want to kind of close ranks around people. And this is your community. Why or elsewhere? Um, so the things that I really kind of came face to face with in terms of that 
very right-wing evangelicalism, sexism, a lot of, like, very hypocritical stuff around women's bodies and reproductive rights, um, and some racism as well. Um, So I'll start with racism. That's probably the thing I had the least. I should say that this church was also very, very diverse. Like, Southern California is a pretty diverse area anyway. Like, there's a very, very high Latino population. It's, like, you see all different nationalities here. And same was same tr- was true in the church, but would never know it by being taught from the pulpit and what the kind of culture they the, the culture that they fostered there. I remember doing a class called, and I wrote about this on Twitter using the church to hashtag, uh, which was a really great movement, by the way, and um, I did a class called America's Christian Heritage because, you know, I wanted to learn more about my country, and I was prepared, and what better way to learn than through a, class, <laughs> a series of videos and curriculum called America's Christian Heritage, and by a guy, and we watch a video every week with a guy called Dave Barton, and I think he started uh, a group. He either started it or he started it, or leads it called War Builders. Yeah. And essentially, it was like the biggest whitewashing of American history. And um, and I distinctly remember it was a small class, but I distinctly remember whether they would talk about um, Native American um, issues or stories. It was it was very very skewed in a weird way, and I had no kind of knowledge to kind of stand up and say, "Hey, that's wrong." But there was a girl in the class who she was part Native American, or she had some Native American heritage in her. And a couple of us in the class, she kind of raised her hand and all speak up and say, "Actually, that's not true." Um, it, I think she there was a story about Sacagawea, I, I believe it was Sacagawea um, mm-hmm. or. And and they called us how they became did they become a Christian once they you know these white on you know, when they came to you know their their lands and and so this girl in class kind of actually that's not true this is really what happened and teachers would like roll their eyes at her and essentially brush her off like she was some crazy person and I at the time oh, yeah she doesn't know what she's talking about shut up and now I'm like. Oh, I wish I stood up for her, and I wish I had known better to be like, yeah, well, or or just to ask her a question. Well, what is that? What is your perspective? I'd like to hear, you know, your point of view on that, and feel really awful about that. Um, but just the, the blatant whitewashing and and negativity towards someone who had a different perspective was really blatant. Um, in terms of the misogyny and sexism and ridicule. That was everywhere. Um, I mean, I start. So I did a premarital class with my then um, husband, uh, husband to be, and just books that they must read, and things like, you know, don't essentially encouraging women not to use birth control and oh, uh, be like you know, the good, meek little housewife who cooks dinner and he's his husband and all this kind of stuff. Thought to, um, you know, a woman's autonomy or identity or independence or any of that because, you know, you're basically your identity is in Christ, but mainly within your your husband's persona, and he's like the person to look up to. And um, but there were like 
I, I was kind of involved in the youth group, but not a lot because I was like mid to late twenties at this point. That wasn't really my thing. But mm. there were um, so many young people like having sex and who weren't married, and they were forced to break up and do counselling separately with some of the pastors and. Um, Oh I just gosh. remember, you know, some of these couples and they were like, yeah, I was told to break up with my girlfriend or uh, we were, you know, we were not allowed to hang out anymore. We're told to not text each other for a month because we had sex. I was just like, oh, okay, that's weird. Um, <laughs> just like stuff like that. And um, and on top of that, there were a number of girls who had secretly had abortions. I, I only found out um, retrospectively that, you know, and these were girls who were like the super clean cut missionary on fire Jesus, pro-life girls, um, you know, very charismatic personalities, leading, you know, sing-alongs and um, speaking at the front of the church for youth sessions and all this stuff. But there were a number of girls who secretly had abortion. I now find out recently that a lot of them, chose to have an abortion because they would much prefer to quote-unquote get rid of the problem and not let people know that they had sex out of the marriage as opposed to keeping the baby and being consistent with their, you know, pro-life beliefs and letting people know they had sex. I was just like, whoa, that's super crazy. And, um, yeah, just th- those are just some of the highlights of what I'd seen throughout the church Um and just like the authoritarian, there was definitely a, a, an undercurrent of authoritarianism that I only glimpsed, and I'm sure it was what I even witnessed. Um, there were a couple of friends of mine, uh, a couple who worked at the church, and um, at one point, I was living with them at one point, and there was one instance where they had an argument about something with the lead pastor and it ended up being that my friends were in the right and the head pastor was in the wrong. And I said to them, oh, so did he, in the end, you know, glad you got it worked out. And they were like, oh, no, he doesn't apologise. He doesn't say sorry. I was like, what? Like just that whole idea of this guy is the authoritarian Sorry, and he, this authoritarian figurehead, you know, you, he's not the humble kind of guy who's going to admit when he's wrong. Like, that's the idea that I got from what you're telling me. I was like, what do you mean he doesn't say sorry? Like, that just kind of struck me as really odd. Um, and so, for instances like that, and just more and more stories about women shamed for you know, being made to feel like they're responsible for men stumbling, um, you know, all that kind of stuff, purity culture, BS. It, you know, it kind of came to a head when I getting divorced in the church and then hearing more about these stories and realised, oh, yeah, that was a super toxic environment, super toxic. Um, yeah. Oh, and one more thing I should also add, which was is probably, uh, you know, I think a lot of ex-evangelicals can identify with, didn't like therapy. They didn't like psychology. They didn't believe in certain types of medical practices. And there were a number of drug addicts there who needed things like rehab and, you know, psychology and, and you know, real health, like medical help. And essentially the idea was you don't need that. You just need Jesus. If you're healed, you don't have enough faith. You're not reading the Bible enough. 
um, you're not plugged into the church enough, you need to pray more, go to get healing prayer, all this kind of stuff. And um, one of my really close girlfriends to this day, that church kind of screwed me up with that kind of teaching and I didn't get the proper healing I needed. And um, yeah, that was really shocking to me that they didn't believe in, you know, certain types of medicine. So yeah, yeah, that that uh, that is unfortunately a very common uh, through line with a lot of people's experience as far as um, things like talk therapy and antidepressants being discouraged. Right. When, um, when they are extremely helpful for uh, millions of people, um, but the idea that very uh, the very idea that you're not you're not b- believing fervently enough. Um, yeah, that's that's extremely toxic. Um, yeah, yeah, and I mean, so much of so much of what you what you said is, uh, I mean, I can understand how um, how, like you said, toxic and and sort of convoluted and twisted things were because I mean, from what you told me just now, you were so extremely involved and you had. Um, you were on the worship team and, and you were serving in all of these capacities and yet, um, you know, women's value was so low um, within that within that community. And that, again, that's a common thing, but it's, it is it is so sad to hear that that was your experience. Yeah, and, and also it was a church that didn't believe in women preaching, you know, on a regular Sunday morning service. Um, or mm-hmm. Friday night service, you know, women could only preach in front of other women at women's events. Like, it's one of those churches too. I mean, yeah, there, there, there are so many things that just I could, you know, continue going on uh, down a list of things, but very, very toxic, very abusive in a lot of ways, um, some of which I've experienced and others that I've heard friends who've also left that church since I left as well. Um, and it's really damaging. I mean, you know, the lack of um, knowledge around mental illness and the lack of being able to care for pe- people um, their coverage, which it's, you know, makes me mad. Yeah. And the other thing that's so, that's so difficult in, about those things is when you choose to leave um, or are forced out, I mean, you since your network of friends and support has been so wrapped up in this singular entity... I mean, you lose so much when you leave. Uh, Definitely. I think mm-hmm. that was, I think that's something I'm still grappling with in terms of that feeling of loss or grief. Mm-hmm. Um, not going to go back there or I miss it, but it's such an integral part of my identity for four or five years. And I was, and, and I was, like a, a Sunday church performer, if you if you will, um, deeply involved. And when I left, and, and I chose to step worship team when I was going through a divorce because it was just a lot going on in my personal life. And I ended up called the yeah. Hey, we haven't seen you in a while. Hey, what's going on? Are you okay? Not one person, and I have so many people there. Like I was. I'm not trying to make it I was popular, but I was very well known because um, I was just very embedded into that church culture. And um, the only people that contacted me were men from the church who would 
send me DMs on Facebook or write me emails saying, hey, you know, you should get divorced. You should give this another go because that's what it says in the Bible. Like that's the <laughs> that kind of just made me go, yeah, well, I'm, I'm definitely making the right decision leaving, but thanks, but no thanks. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah, and that, yeah. Which, which makes the whole like, oh, it's a big community. We're a fellowship. We're all this, that, and the other. Even worse when you leave because you realize, well, what? what's the substance there? Like you only like me when I tick all the boxes and agree to everything you're telling me. Like it's not authentic community at all. And I realize that now. And, um, and that in itself is a big topic and uh, abusive too, because it makes you feel like, Oh, I'm so alone. I'm part of this big community. And I was, you know, having lunches and dinner and, you know, made friends and relationships with these people. And all of a sudden I have nothing. Well, even though I don't agree with it, maybe I should just go back to it. And I didn't, but I know friends that have done it. They just keep going back to an abusive environment. And it, mm. it's, it, it's really, it's really sad. I know I'm not the only person who's experienced that. I mean, I, I've heard so, so many stories like that. Yeah. Yeah. Our, I mean, uh, us too. Like our, that was, that was our experience when we left ours. I mean, there's even a term for it. Have you heard hmm. the Christian ghosting? Have you heard that? <laughs> no. Uh, what is that? It's basically, you know, like the as far as it's sort of a take on the dating term of or like ghosting when you just stop texting, that sort of thing. Or, um, but in this context, oh, in this context, it's you know that uh, that you leave a church or like you disapprove of someone's lifestyle or whatever, then uh, you Christian ghost them. Like you stop <laughs> responding to them. Like uh, uh, it's, it's yeah, there, I've read a couple of articles about it because it's so, I mean, it's so prevalent that someone's written an article about it, you know. Um, it's so common, which is just tragic. It's just a, yeah. a, a tragic element of um, – you know, it's sort of like groupthink and not even just groupthink, but but the necessity. And as you mentioned, like within an authoritarian environment, if you deviate from whatever the uh, personality that's in charge, the, the authority that's in charge, then there's no middle ground whatsoever. Um, and that's yeah. And it has traumatic effect on people's lives um, that, yeah, it's it's really, really hard. I am, I am curious. You uh, now, you you can feel free to um, to not answer this, or maybe I can phrase it a different way after after I ask it this first time. Um, but in the way you sort of told this story, it sort of um, did it end up that once you left, that people that were within the church started um, confiding in you in the sorts of things that. Um, they didn't feel they could confide in the, the other ch- church members about? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so after I left the church, I moved to a different part of Los Angeles and I kind of started getting involved in different uh, like women in film and women in media groups and kind of basically established like a whole new social circle, and which I'm still part of and it's just amazing and I love it. 
and I started learning about things like feminism, which I always heard was like the dirtiest word ever. And so I learned what it really was um, and, you know, just started hearing more about issues from the complete opposite end of the spectrum, abortion, um, LGBTQ issues, uh, politics in general, immigrant issues, all of this kind of stuff that I had seen glimpses of in this church of mine from a very right-wing mentality. And uh, and so I I started learning more about just just general issues. I wouldn't even like issues. And I started forming my real first own opinions about issues such as abortion and gay marriage. And I realized, oh, actually, I think the complete opposite to what I was taught in evangelical culture, like gay marriage should absolutely be legalized. I think abortion should not be made illegal at all after reading, you know, statistics and looking at what happens in countries like El Salvador when you do make it illegal. Um, and so I, I would kind of then, you know, share articles on Facebook publicly and I was still friends online with a lot of these friends from that church. And, you know, I, I was just unashamedly putting my thoughts out there, um, even though I was still at that point consider myself like, oh, I'm a Christian, I still, you know, would go to church, you know, different kind of church at that point. Um, so, and I would have some of my girlfriends from that um, church that I was going to, every now and then I would get a private message on Facebook saying, oh, I'm so glad you shared about that issue. My cousin went through this or, oh, I, I'm glad you spoke about that. I actually went through that too and I didn't want to tell anyone, but um, yeah, thank you for writing about that or what, you know, those kind of things just kept happening more and more. Like, thank you for sharing that with me. I feel really honored that you feel comfortable sharing that. And, um, it just made me sad that the majority of people that were reaching out to me were people who were very prominently known for a certain type of persona or, you know, belief in that church setting but they felt ashamed of something they'd done in their life and made me realize, oh, it made me think to myself, ask myself, why is the church the last place that, for example, women go when they decide to have an abortion or they have certain issues or they've been abused or have been in a toxic relationship? Why is the church the last place? And for me as well, like the church was not the first place that I went to. I was going through a divorce and there was abuse in my marriage, I was so embarrassed and scared and afraid to tell anyone at church that I just kept it all in and I didn't tell anyone, um, which is just so unhealthy. And so the more I started kind of figuring out what I believe politically and socially and putting that out there, more of these right to me and then just over the past four, four, three, three or four years, I realized that there's something going on within religious structures that needs to be unearthed, needs to be exposed, and that needs to be kind of, there needs to be a reset button. And I feel like it's starting to happen with this election, with the Me Too and the Church Too movements, and women especially finding their voice within a church and religious setting. I don't think it's just evangelicalism. It's other religions too. Like women speaking up saying like, 
you know, this is damaging. I've, I've lived for too long with this hurt and pain and um, I don't hide it anymore. So it was definitely an interesting journey for me realizing that it wasn't because I, for a long time I felt like I was the broken one, I was the wrong one, I'm the heathen, I'm just the awful person that decided to leave church, I'm backslidden, and all those words that people use, and I'm now in the world, so I'm basically of the devil. Um, and so it made me feel like, okay, uh, I'm not – there's nothing about me that's broken just because I think a different way than – the conservative church that I was going to. And so Mm -hmm. that's definitely been a huge part of my journey of the last three or four years exploring, like, what is my identity now? Am I a person of faith? Do I still believe all the things? Um, And basically in my construction of what I was taught and trying to figure out my identity from the ground up without the influence of parents, background, church, all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, I mean, <laughs> that that's such a such an important um, it's such an important thing to be able to do is sort of define your define yourself on your own terms, and it's so actively discouraged in places like where you work. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm I for one am glad even you know in the emails that we've exchanged and talking to you now, like I I for one am glad that you've been able to have the freedom to do that. Um, because it's it's essential work and it's it's really necessary as just part of your personal development and it's so stunted and discouraged in lots of places um, because it's it, sometimes it leads to the wrong answers so to speak. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I I felt like I had a, a mini revelation just the other day. Um, I've been one part of my identity that's always been very, very strong for me is that I'm very career focused. I'm very ambitious. I'm very driven. And so work is like a huge part of my identity, who I am. And if I'm not working, I feel like there's something missing in my life or I'm still like not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But I was always taught like, oh, if you if you didn't get that job or, you know, the ambitions you're desiring are not going the way you you seek it's well maybe God's trying to tell you something or you shouldn't your identity shouldn't be stuffed up in these things in the world like your identity is in Christ and that's it and then the other day I realized you know what regardless of why what my relationship is with Jesus or the Bible or faith in general like my identity work is part of my identity my career is part of my identity and I'm sick of apologizing for that and I'm not going to buy into this these whole mind games of, well, if, if, if you have the job that you want, it's because you're doing something wrong psychologically. Like it's such a, it's just such a, I mean, I want to use the word mindfuck, but it kind of <laughs> is like yeah, makes you think that you're not doing something like the problem is with you as opposed to, you know, I work in the entertainment industry and shit is hard and it's very competitive. That's why I didn't get the job. You know? As opposed to like God's not giving to you because you haven't figured out that lesson that He's been waiting to show you, and even though He's Almighty and all powerful, He still hasn't been able to show you yet. So yeah, yeah, yeah. God's just really passive aggressive. That's <laughs> super passive aggressive. <laughs> he's just he's just you know trying to just throw the brakes on your career because He's so passive yeah. aggressive. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That and I mean that is 
it, I think mindfuck is probably the most apt term there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's 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 uh, it's trying to undermine a key part of your own ambition. Um, yeah, but I. I think, you know, you mentioned, um, like, all these different cultural touch points that have happened so recently and that are still so fresh in everyone's mind, especially if they're engaged in the conversations on Twitter or Facebook or or just in the society at large uh, around the fallout of the election as as well as um, all the movements that have uh, really started since then, the Women's March Right after mm. the election, um, Me Too, Church Too, um, and all of those sort of affiliated things. Um, empty the pews. Right, empty the pews. Absolutely, all of those that are that are calling out the um, the different institutional problems and individual problems that are happening. Um, you've you've mentioned a lot of stuff in regards to um, women's issues, reproductive rights, and everything. Um, is there? Anything, I mean, I don't even know whether you're necessarily personally invested in this, um, you know, whether, like you mentioned, you're still working out what faith and belief means for you. Um, but as far as what you think these organizations um, and churches and things like that need to um, have that reset button that you mentioned, uh, like, what, mm. do you th- what do you think, I mean, what do you think that would look like? What, uh, what do you th- what sort of attitudinal changes and other sorts of like actual changes that mean that would mean something to a church member or to a young uh, a young girl or a young woman in a church? Um, what would that what what does that look like in in your mind as far as what that reset button would would do? I mean, I know that's a really big question, but it's, <laughs> it seems like it seems like it's something you've uh, you've given thought to because because of the last few years and what you've developed um, for yourself as well. Yeah. I mean, I should also say that I'm by no means an expert, you know, I'm, I'm not here to tell anyone what they should do, but I, I definitely do have thought about that and what a reset would look like because it is so desperately needed. Um, and I guess I'll specifically talk in the area of reproductive rights uh, because as we all know, in this world, abortion is the one of the biggest, if not the biggest issue that keeps people going to the ballot box. I mean, look at mm-hmm. this whole Roy Moore bullshit. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. insane. So for me, a reset button would look like let's get educated about this issue first and foremost, because for me, it was like the minute I just started reading even the most basic statistics around abortion, it was like, oh, oh, okay, all of a sudden, not a black and white issue. It's not just like all these Democrats and pro-choice feminists are going out there killing their babies and we're over here as Christian conservatives protecting life. That's not what happens at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. And I think that the buying terms, pro-life and pro-choice, they're just not um, comprehensive enough. Uh, I think they need to go, to be honest, uh, because they're so deeply entrenched into the political idea of what abortion is. Like, you're either for or against it. It's like, actually, the issue has a lot more nuance than that. Once you start looking at, well, how does it affect certain women of a socioeconomic uh, bracket? How does it affect age groups? Um, How do certain things, sex education and access to health care, affect women's decision to get abortion? Like, there are so many things interconnected with abortion that, never get talked about from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Um, 
give an example. At a church, um, over the last few years, I've kind of been like on and off to a vineyard church in my local area, um, and they're, you know, it's a very small church, and they're very community-minded, and it, they're good in that sense, but I kind of stopped going. Um, but what that, I was there one Sunday when they were giving a sermon about why I should be pro-life, and I was like, oh, gosh, okay, what are we going to hear here? Um, and instead of getting any women to talk, you know, and share their story, I got a man who shared about how him and his girlfriend when they were in high school decided to get an abortion. I was like, okay, that's red flag number one. You're only getting a man to talk about um, his abortion story through his girlfriend. Um, and there was uh, a pastor who kind of said, she threw out this statistic, you know, like ever since 1970, there have been 50 million abortions. Like I hear this audible gasp from the congregation, like, oh, that's so awful. I'm like, wait, that's it? You're just going to throw out that statistic in isolation and not offer any context at all? Like that is so genuine, so inauthentic and so shameful. And this is why women pick up about their abortion in churches, even though women in Christian and Catholic circles have abortions and use birth control just about the same rate as every other non-religious woman out there or person out there getting an abortion. And, you know, there's no kind of context about why abortions happen. Why are there so so many unintended pregnancies every year? So I guess I can start with, like, just a few basic facts. Like, roughly every year there are 3 million pregnancies in America and about was unintended. Why are nearly 1.5 million women in America having unintended pregnancies? Like, that's not that's not a small number. We should look into that. So mm-hmm. I would start researching issues like birth control access and sex education and the states that put money into funding abstinence-only programs. Well, those states have the higher highest rates of STDs uh, and teen pregnancies. So. Hello, that should be a no-brainer. Let's stop teaching abstinence only. That garbage does not work. Mm-hmm. Um, birth control access. Like, there are a lot of people in the pro-life movement who don't even want people to use birth control. We're seeing it now in the Trump administration rolling back the birth control mandate um, provision in Obamacare, um, you know, appointing anti-birth control people in the H. Department and it's like you look at states like Colorado who did this. They did this experiment a number of years ago, where they gave out IUDs to low-income women and teen girls, and the rate of abortions and unintended pregnancies fell by 40%. That's a huge number. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, it's like, okay, this is no longer just a religious issue or a political issue. It's a social issue. Why are we looking at the numbers and? Why are we looking at how interconnected it is with other issues? And it just bums me out that churches don't take the lead on that. They want to take the lead on, you know, myths or just, you know, perpetuating the same tired narrative about abortion. And it doesn't do it doesn't do the church any favors because abortion is not going to be overturned anytime soon. You know, they've been saying it ever since 1973. It hasn't been overturned. When are they going to realize that there has to be a better way to actually help women and children and perhaps naturally reduce rates of abortion anyway? Um, So for me, a reset button would be like, let's foster a culture of open dialogue, no shame, no condemnation, and 
maybe get some medical experts in and create a space where women who have had abortions can speak up and don't feel ashamed to speak up and say, hey, actually, church, I had an abortion and here's why. And, you know, seeing people come around her and go, we love you and, you know, no one judges you and how can we help you going forward? You know, or a single mother who, you know, had a child and, you know, says, like, oh, I need support, but there are all these policies that you guys are voting for that don't support my child and people gathering around her and saying, all right, sorry, we've got to do better, our bad, let's reform the way we think about protecting the sanctity of life. Um, so I, I, there's, there's so many things that need to happen for the church to really take the lead on being, I don't even want to say pro-choice because I don't think the word pro-choice does it justice. It's more like humanitarian-minded toward the issue of abortion and not looking at it like just something that happens in arbitrary, like if women don't wake up every day, uh, you know, just women don't wake up on any given day going, you know what, I'm going to get my nails done, then after that I'm going to pop down to the clinic and get an abortion because I'm sick of this pregnancy. Like, that's not how it happens, but that's the narrative that's kind of out there. Like, women are just getting rid of their babies, they're killing them at five months and, you know, these partial birth abortions, like just the bullshit that's out there around abortion is is just so unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm probably rambling here, so... Uh, sorry about that. No, it's, it's, it's all good. I mean, you're you're bringing up a lot of a lot of really really good points of of ways in which you know um, ways in which there can there could be a lot more healthy conversation about sexuality and reproductive rights um, that is led and centered on uh, on uh, led and centered on the woman's experience. I mean that um, right. because. Yeah, because of all the other things you've mentioned, I mean, women in evangelicalism have uh, are so disadvantaged uh, from the ideology <laughs> that that supports it all the way through to the ways in which your own ambition was, you know, you're being gaslighted about wanting to succeed in your job, uh, in your career. I mean, that's uh, that's uh, it's, yeah. it's all just stacked against it. But I mean, to your point, like. All those statistics clearly, you know, it's, it's church isn't going to stop people. No, no matter what people think, church isn't going to stop people from having sex. You know, like no, uh, exactly. Uh, so, you know, uh, it's it's just it is certainly, uh, yeah, it's it's such a, un, you know, an unfortunate state of affairs right now. And I'm, I, you know, it's it's hard to. To think of ways in which um, ways in which that 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 could happen, but I mean the way the the elements that you bring up are, I, I'm I you know it's it's hard for me. I don't I don't bring people on to disagree with them. <laughs> so you know, uh, <laughs> like I I agree with you know I I agree with what you've said. <laughs> so uh, because there's just not much sense in in the in letting things continue the way they are. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to there's a deep fundamental distrust of women having control over their lives, over their bodies, over their sexuality. And so that, as long as that is going on foundationally in the evangelical movement, that there is never going to be any progression on the issue of abortion. And if the church doesn't want to take the lead, then we are going to get the hell out of there and we're going to start our own movement. 
And you're never going to be the place, church, where women go to for help in the numbers that you think you should be um, the place. So it's either like, you know, step up or step aside. And right now it looks like you're not stepping up and, you know, other people are stepping in and and taking the lead and, and really taking back the narrative um, about how we should be treating women as equals and, and, and not kind of fetishizing their bodies around their reproductive value. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think so a lot of work done and oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I think we were delayed a little bit. I didn't mean to cut you off there. Um, no, not at all. I, fi- I finished. I finished. Oh, oh, okay. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, I, I, I certainly agree with that as well. And I mean, I, I do think that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of power in people, you know, a, a key part of a lot of what you said was, you know, listen to women, let them tell their stories, listen to the people that have been disaffected by this culture. And that's very much what, uh, you know, I think that the people that, and the number of podcasts and everything that have sort of proliferated that are centering the stories of people that have been pushed out, the people like um, the people that reached out to you when you left your church and the people, uh, I mean, they're, there's power in telling the stories, like instead of like letting um, languish it or, or, you know, it's just a, there's, there's something about that. That's, that's very powerful. And I, I'm glad to see that as sort of the, one of the manifestations of the frustration in this cultural moment. Yeah, definitely. And, and I will be confident that I haven't personally had an abortion. Um, you know, I feel very, for that sense, necessarily a decision for people to make, but I feel like it's just, I mean, I don't want to use the word destiny, but I feel like it's something that the first thing in my career I've truly felt like, finally, like this is what I'm meant to be doing. This is how I'm meant to be speaking and what I'm meant to be speaking about. So I definitely want to join with other people who are passionate about that have kind of come from the same background. And there are organizations and people within the greater community of faith in America, um, like um, Catholics for Choice. There's even a Republicans for Choice, um, pro-choice Republicans group, which is super bizarre. Um, But, you know, there are the Episcopal Church, um, mostly generally pretty pro-choice and support organizations like Planned Parenthood and, NARAL and so there are people within the faith community, um, you know, doing work and speaking out and um, they're just heard as loudly as right wing chorus. But, you know, that's changing. That is absolutely changing since this election. And I think, you know, as small as each individual person may feel their voice is, the, the more we all speak up, you know, strength in numbers, and that is going to change the culture. And I think the right-wing, quote-unquote, moral majority is definitely losing its power And because of people like us, because of the movements we're creating and standing against. And ironically, it's people who come from the right-wing evangelical background and who grew up in that setting that are now, like, saying, see ya, peace out, I'm, I'm on the other side, I'm going to be on the side for justice and mm. peace and love and humanity. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting and very um, encouraging to see. 
love to also hear a little bit about what you do at uh, Girl Talk HQ and the other things that you're um, that you're involved in. Yeah, for sure. Um, so girltalkhq.com, go visit it. Um, it's basically a website that I started. Um, I started it for myself. So I've worked in digital broadcast media for a number of years. Um, I've always worked primarily in like pop culture, lifestyle, entertainment, um, especially in my early 20s, and which was great at that time. But then, you know, going through a divorce, going through this whole like deconstruction experience and um, figuring out who I was as an adult and a young woman, I really was craving media and literature and content that kind of spoke to where I was at in life. And this would have been 2011, 2012-ish, and I just found that there wasn't a whole lot out there that was empowering for me um, outside of, you know, like Cosmo and Marie Claire, which I think are really great. Uh, but then, excuse me, at the same time, that it, that was just the start of, like, the current wave of, like, digital feminism and intersectionality and seeing more uh, feminist websites start up. So I thought, well, I'm going to just start a blog and write about women and issues and things that... I've now become super passionate about and I want to put out there because I think that more people need to know about these super inspiring stories. And so I started it on Tumblr initially and then it just, I moved it over to WordPress and it just kind of became its own thing and mm-hmm. grew, grew readership. And so now I, I look at it as my baby, my other baby, aside from my <laughs> real baby. Uh, <laughs> which existed before my son did. Um, yeah, it's basically a platform to share empowering stories about women breaking barriers, just doing amazing social activism work and just kind of pushing the boundaries for what, it, what intersectional feminism looks like around the world. And um, I manage a small team of semi-regular writers and bloggers and I, um, I, I interview like women in film, female CEOs, it's just a really great platform for me that I had been craving for many, many years. And now I just created the thing that I wanted to see. And it's just, I, I love it. That's kind of like my day job. And then aside from that, I still work in um, digital and broadcast media. I uh, I do a lot of freelance writing and, and hosting and reporting here and there. I've done that for a number of different um, over the last few years. Um, but I'm currently in the process of developing and pitching a docu-series uh, about reproductive rights, um, looking at abortion from a completely different perspective that, to be honest, really no other TV show or documentary about abortion has done before. So I, I'm working on this series that is basically following my journey, coming out of the evangelical movement, coming into a space where I realized, um, you know, what I actually think about abortion once I started reading the facts, and it's essentially uh, an attempt to find common ground between pro-choice and pro-life by looking at issues like birth control, sex education, paid leave, foster care, maternal mortality, um, teen mothers, and child marriage. Um, FYI, in case people didn't know, child marriage is a thing that happens in the United States. It's legal in all 50 states. Um, so that's a thing that I'm developing and I've been teaming up with a, I with a director writer here in Los Angeles and we've been showing it to a number of different platforms and been getting really good reception. 
since the election. Um, and it's definitely, I feel like my, the project that I've always been meaning to do and all of my experience and passion is leading up to this project. Um, essentially it's, it's me saying to the world and to, to churches, the people who are invested in this issue, you cannot look at abortion just at abortion. If you want to deal with abortion, you have to look at all these other issues because they're interconnected. And once you start looking at those and putting your energy into them, you'll be surprised at how naturally the rate of abortion will be reduced. Abortions will be reduced. And we don't need to make it illegal. You don't need to pass ridiculous laws that have no basis in medical fact. Um, let's just look at the issues that lead women to make this choice and see if we can create a new narrative around this. So it's a bold um, attempt. You know, finding common ground between pro-choice and pro-choice seems super ambitious and unrealistic, but I think the more you scratch below the surface, there is more common ground to be had, um, you know, once you look at issues like education or birth control. So that's my that's my other project that I'm spending the majority of my time on, and um, I'm really passionate about seeing it come to fruition, and it's just a matter of finding the right company and right network that will be willing to go there. I mean, even in Hollywood, there are networks and executives in this liberal environment. Oh, I don't know if I want to touch that. I don't know if that's, you know, it's a very touchy subject. So, um, yeah, it's just a matter of timing and getting in front of the right people. Uh, and then other than that, I have a three-month-old son <laughs> who I'm spending a lot of time with. And, awesome. um, yeah, and just being a new mom is, is very exciting and challenging and, and just a whole new um, perspective on life for me. So that's, that's the other part of my um, life right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, those are all really, um, great projects and, and also congratulations on being, um, being an, a new parent. That's, that's a lot. Thank of fun. you. I mean, it's challenging and it's, it's really sweet and it's a, it's such an interesting <laughs> time of life for sure. Um, but yeah. yeah, as far as, as far as your other projects that that's great. And it's, it's also, a lot of the best stuff comes from, you know, the desire to read something and then you just decide to read or watch or do something and you just decide to do it yourself. So that's that's great that that's the, I, you know, what pushed, what propelled you to do Girl Talk HQ and your, your documentary series sounds really fascinating. And uh, as the story develops and everything, um, I'd love to talk to you about it again for sure. Uh, as that. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep you posted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much for being on the show, Asha. Um, where can people find you online? Yeah, so you can um, check out girltalkhq.com and the Twitter and Instagram handle for that is just at girltalkhq. For myself, I'm on Twitter at Asha Dyer, A-S-H-A-D-A-H-Y-A. Same thing on Instagram. Uh, I'm also on Facebook which is facebook.com forward slash Asha Dyer page because someone else had taken Asha Dyer. <laughs> so I had to add page on the end. Um, <laughs> but I, I spend the majority of my personal time on uh, Twitter. So, yeah, follow me there and, and um, hit me up, ask me questions and all of the good stuff. And 
I um I love to meet new people online, and I think there's a really great community out there sharing stories and speaking up in this era of resistance. So, um, yeah, I love to connect with people. Great, great, awesome. Thanks so much, Ash, for being on the show. Thank you.